on like a rainy October day, we get called out to New Jersey and get so that our uh, the entire supply chain that you know I I personally because I over, oversee operations it's been the past six months like you know blood sweat and tears building investing getting to a point where finally things felt stable entire rug was getting pulled out from under us you know a zero day notice supply chain contract was being canceled. Hi folks, thanks for tuning into the Food Startups Podcast. I am your host, Hema Reddy. On this show, we talk about some incredible journeys, the hurdles, the breakthroughs, the failures, and successes that shape the present and future of the food and beverage industry. So stick around for some exciting and insightful conversation. Hi folks. On this episode 168 of the Food Startups Podcast, I have a delightful conversation with Matt Bachman. In 2013, Matt Bachman walked into a grad school classroom carrying a travel mug of homemade cold brew coffee. And there he met his co-founder, Ben Gordon, who was sitting with a leather-wrapped mason jar filled with his own homebrew. A fast friendship turned into fanaticism and obsession with coffee that set the two off on what has now been a four-year journey to create the best-tasting cold brew products possible and bring them to market in innovative ways. Wandering Bear Coffee is now sold in over 750 retailers, including Target, Costco, and Whole Foods, and is distributed nationally to offices and via their website. Matt talks about how creative market positioning, as well as a super intelligent channel strategy, is making a whole lot of difference for their business. So let's get right to it. Matt Buckman from Wandering Bear Coffee. Well, hello there, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So Matt, I have been just reading a little bit more about Wandering Bear Coffee. And with respect to consumer product goods and Knowing what I know now into two and a half years into this journey, into this industry, I always wonder, I'm always curious about how people get into food business. Right? You went to Michigan, go blue, by the way, my husband is a Michigan <laughs> alumni, yeah. <laughs> so college football is big in our house. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then you went to Columbia. So at what point did the bulb go off? Like, you know, at what point did you say, okay, I went to Michigan, now I'm into Columbia. I'm going to get into food business. How did that happen? Yeah, I think getting, you know, getting into food, and I think you know, a common story for a lot of food entrepreneurs is a, is a passion for, for food, for drink, for just like you know, the, the culinary aspects of life and culture. And that's always been very much Ben and myself, just from a, a, a social and a personal interest perspective, love of food, love of drink, love of exploring. Um, certainly one of the things that drew both of us to living in New York City is, you know, coffee fanatics, the, the boom of, of, you know, craft cafe and coffee culture here. The the restaurant and culinary scene is all like a, a big draw, obviously. And so I think for many, it's like what, you know, I guess the root of your question is what takes that consumer interest and really prompts people to go and, and start businesses around it. And I think that takes a little bit of inspiration and a good deal of serendipity. I mean, I think for for Ben and I, we'd both taken breaks from our professional career to go to grad school 
and you know, we hadn't met each other yet, but we would learn, you know, upon meeting that you know, we were there and had decided to take, you know, take a step back on our professional trajectories for, for a shared reason. And that's that we were really looking to dive into something, to find something that we could dedicate ourselves professionally to that could also, that we could also be passionate about. And so, you know, Ben and I meet, you know, early days of grad school, walking into you know, class with, with cold brew coffee that we had made at home, strike up a you know, conversation around that. And over the course of weeks, I mean, you know, day, day two, it was off to the races where we were egging each other's consumer interest in coffee and love of coffee into what became, you know, fanaticism. And so, you know, as define that when you say fanaticism, were you brewing coffee, giving it to your friends in grad school? And I assume you mean Columbia, right? And, and no, yes, precisely. And we would bring it to each other in class. I mean, th- think, you know, uh, d- different dimensions of it. I think you could measure it, but yeah, it's like how much of your, your, your brain waves are being occupied by thoughts about a specific topic. And it, you know, that's, that's one you know, dimension of fanaticism. I think another, you just like put a little bit of a competitive spin on it. It's like, you know, imagine if you were, you had someone all of a sudden and and you guys were almost competing to you know, see who could you know, discover more bring a tidbit bring a you know bring a, a brew to class that you know that topped the days prior in terms of you know the the one thing we were going for really at the time was was a chocolatiness i mean our goal was to to put something in a cup that tasted like uh tasted like you know, cold, dark chocolate uh, it was one of the things that we were going for initially and so and it, it was you know, is really just kind of that that nugget, that time in life where we were looking for something to dive deep on, to really sink our teeth into, get passionate. And this also, you know, you know we met, you know, you know, kind of fortuitously, you know, with in, in a similar headspace at a similar time in our lives and at a very fortunate time in a exploding and interesting beverage category. And so we'd been, you know, we'd been, you know, living in New York, um, you know, and, you know, frequent, frequenting the, the craft third wave cafes that were that were sprouting up all over the city were you know early into the cold brew trend. Uh, started seeing it come out packaged, and, and really what it came down to you know, again, not not a you know not the most earth shattering of, of insights. It was just that we we you know we knew we made really good coffee. We knew you know, we saw the products coming onto market and thought that we it wasn't even necessarily about doing better. I mean, we obviously believe we do it better but it was we saw an opportunity to do it differently and to evolve and and to to you know bring something new to market that evolved the category in a direction that we were passionate about and really thought that there was a consumer opportunity for and so so did the business school give you like a launch pad to take this idea and launch it into a business columbia was fantastic the you know again you know, it had a very we were there at the right time. Entrepreneurship, I think, was like the, you know, you'll see the word diagrams, you know, the graphic design where the words are all different sizes. And I, I think entrepreneurship on the Columbia pamphlet or brochure or whatever that year that we started, entrepreneurship was the biggest word. Uh, it was it was a capital focus of the university and of the business school uh, during the time that we were there. So we were really fortunate you know, even to this day, you know, they, they really do put their entrepreneurs up on, on a pedestal and, and try to support them. You know, I'll say out of the, you know, the other side of my mouth, and, and you know, for anyone, you know, whenever you're starting a business, 
no, you know, no one's going to start it for you. And there's really very few resources that can be given that will be greater than your own agency dedication drive. Right. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's really about taking a step back, looking at the context you're playing in and figuring out how to bring as many people kind of with resources and desire to help into the fold, but they, but you know, you're, you, you still need to direct it. And so, I mean, we were very conscious of that opportunity it really made it a goal of ours to to get every you know, to take advantage of every opportunity we could within the school. So I mean, we started the business on a seven thousand dollars shoestring budget that we won in a pitch competition. Like we, you know, our very first ever, you know, you can still you can. <laughs> it's it's funny. I think it's funny one just because it's like super startup and bootleg, but it's also um, not all that different than than how the business has evolved that you can still Google and find like a little video we made online, like a 60 second clip to enter this pitch competition. And so we got selected. We ended up winning. We started the business on $7,000. I mean, to this day, we're still shaking some of that scrappiness, some of that scrappy mentality. Um, uh, yeah, Google for it. It's, uh, I think it's like Warren's shark tank wandering bear and, and, and you'll find it. The, um, <laughs> I definitely want to see that video. It's on YouTube. But anyway, so, you know, and you know, we, we won subsequent competitions within the school, you know, that provided a little bit of funding. We, were, we actually did receive uh, an investment from the school's uh, venture fund upon graduation, a small uh, seed investment. Yeah, I mean, they really, you know, tried to make that part of, part of you know, the, the, I guess what we, the secret weapons of, you know, kind of as we were getting started in the early days. And at that point, so you've got, you've won this pitch competition, you've got some more investment from the university. Was that a convertible note or do you recall? I'm sure you do know, recall, but what was the manner of the investment? The investment from the school was on a convertible note. Gotcha. Okay. So you already have some backing of a prominent institution. You would know that this time is right. It's a growing trend or it's set as a trend that's just getting born and you have a partner. And now you are off to the races. At what point did it seem like, okay, this is going to be a viable business and you had your channel strategy figured out and then everything mapped out? Was it right away the same year or was there ever a point that we're on to something big? Suppose I would, would envy those that, that feel, would feel at that point like they, they had their entire channel strategy mapped out. I mean, our channel strategy became very evolutionary and we can, we can get into that. But the, I think you know, if, we're, if we're looking at the timeline, so we had been in business for about a full year before we actually raised that convertible note that the school invested in. So we already had, you know, customers, a base of wholesale revenue. You know, it, you know we really sought to start as lean as possible. Um, you know, we were students at the time. We joke that, you know, Wandering Bear was the full time in school was the side hustle, especially during that second year. The, um, and you know, our focus had been twofold. It was one, you know, we launched as a direct to office subscription service serving, you know, cold brew to offices at the time, just in, just in Manhattan. That is still a core part of the business that's now expanded. And uh, by the end of the year, will be fully national. But the, the, the real objective during that second year was to prove a whole, that the, that the business had some wholesale viability. And you know, we believed then and, and still believe now that you know, the the direct business is is a is a key differentiator and an incredibly valuable part of, of what we do and one of the things we do best and most differently 
but to build a business at scale, you know, taking advantage of the leverage you can get out of wholesale channels, you know, distributors and retailers, um, both both brick and mortar and online, was was paramount. And so we needed a we needed to to prove viability in, in that channel of trade. And so you know, during our I think it was 2015, we landed Fresh Direct, big online grocery retailer in the Northeast. We landed them as our first wholesale account and. Right out of the gate, and still to this day, the velocity through that account has been immense. The reorder rates have, have only ever gone in one direction, and so you know that nugget, that that case study, both enabled us to raise a little bit of capital, but also gave us confidence that this could be could be as big as we were hoping it could be. Which I found also very interesting. I was looking on your website, Matt, and normally you would see stores or online, but a key menu item on Wandering Bear Coffee is office orders. And you don't see that very much, which I thought was very creative and really putting a stake in the ground saying, yes, we are your go-to point if you want to provide cold brew coffee to your either co-working space or offices. Is that still a part? It's a, it's a good revenue generator for you, given when you look at all your channels? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in any given month, you know, right now, I would say the business is split about a third, a third, a third, if we look at the past three months. So we are a third direct, both direct to office, direct to consumer. We are a third wholesale food service. So that is uh, two distributors into corporate cafes, uh, some some quick serve restaurant, cafeteria, and as well as, as micro markets and vending. Uh, and then a third retail, uh, brick and mortar and online. So it's pretty pretty evenly balanced. We value our direct business immensely. We're actually going to be relaunching a direct-to-consumer subscription service that we'll be able to fill nationally within the next couple of weeks via the website and, and you know, re, re-platforming to make that a better experience online. I think for us, the, the, the key has always been, if you take back to like what that insight was, in the early days of the category, and I would say we're still in the early days of the category, it evolved to serve a very specific general segment. What the category looks like today is highly suited to grocery and maybe convenience is, is channels where consumers can discover the products. And as we saw the opportunity for cold brew, which is, which we firmly believe we are just, just at the beginning of, because you know, I think if you go outside major markets, I think you know, category awareness is still relatively low. Category trial is still relatively low. And it's far from becoming like the, the staple item, like you know, milk and orange juice that, that we believe it eventually will be in the American kitchen. And so the question is around discovery. How do you get consumers to realize that you know, uh, you know you have your hot coffee and when you want iced coffee, that cold brew is the way to go. And then the you know how do you promote that trial and, and hack that that consumption behavior? And for us, so much of that is focused on the ritual. And so like when we think you know that that was the initial insight is that the. I, you know, for, forget for a second the delicious liquid because that that to us is that's why we that's that's the hook that keeps them forever. But what gets them initially, we feel, is is format and function. So you know, we try to put our products as conveniently close to that point of consumption in a format that works best for that occasion as possible. So you know, that initial insight, you know, in in the direct to office business, that is in a sixteen serving coffee on tap box. Um, you know, that's, that's fully recyclable arrives. You, you open it and keeps coffee fresh after you, uh, even after you open it and dispenses from the, the refrigerator shelf or the countertop. And so you know, that found very, very quick product market fit in offices. 
and and now is increasingly finding product market fit in consumers' homes as people are looking for you know to keep larger volumes of cold brew fresh once they they know they love the love the liquid. What would you say would characterize Wandering Bear Coffee different compared to your other competitors today? So you know if if you take the actual coffee, so you know, we we use you know, fair trade organic you know high, high you know incredibly high quality beans from Peru, but in terms of the actual you. Know, the the dimensions that you would look at the at the coffee itself on you know will always be the highest caffeinated will we don't add sugar to our products if you know the flavors that we launch and will continue to roll out will 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 be the cleanest label in the category so you know those are some of the dimensions for the liquid and then on the packaging you know the the promise to the consumer is that it fits the occasion so you know our 11 ounce on the go cartons are you know exactly as branded coffee on the go you own a resealable carton the coffee on tap perfect for home and office so it's really you know the you know our promise is to you know continue to work to understand their ritual and how they're going to use how the consumer is going to use the product and deliver on on the promise to be the best for that occasion so far, and you guys are doing great you're in uh, over 750 retailers and landed some really big uh, wholesale accounts Target, Costco, Whole Foods. And uh, what I loved about, you know, what you've shared so far, and it has been an intelligent journey, if you will, because you've tried to leverage channels that give you a higher margin and a direct uh, interface with your consumer to keep innovating, keep, keep you know, refining the product, going direct, going food service gives you that opportunity to make sure that you are able to have a good amount of cash that you can carry over and then go into retail brick and mortar, which is increasingly becoming the strategy for up and coming startups as well, where we're realizing that a lot of times going uh, direct or e-commerce is becoming a center point of the strategy to first get that launch pad, get the product out there, get the feedback, refine the product and be in a good position to be able to scale with retail. So it all sounds like a great journey so far, but I also know that it, food business is hard. You know this as well. And it's at least in the early days when you're bootstrapping and you're doing everything from you know getting early traction to proving your velocity and getting distributors, production, supply chain, operations, marketing, sales. I mean, everything you're just probably Ben and you <laughs> and maybe a you know, handful of help. Was there ever a low point where it almost broke you and you were like, man, I could have done so much more <laughs> in New York City than, you know, selling cold brew coffee. Was there ever a moment like that? The almost broke us. Yes. That, the, that last sentiment, no. And <laughs> I just got, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny at, at all of the, you know, and, and there, there are always low points, even on high weeks, there are low points. Right. Um, and, and actually something Ben and I you know, need to be as the team grows increasingly sensitive to is that we as founders have been largely desensitized to the vacillations of the day-to-day week to week. And, and really, you know, it's like, we kind of you know, recognize with like a kind of a pat on the back and, or, you know, or some sort of, you know, almost congratulatory, like a celebration, a celebration with, with members of our team when they're having that first moment, right. That first, like real, like, you know, the, that first real gut punch <laughs> because i mean you just you learn you learn to bear it but like when it's just us in the room and and you know and when we're having those moments you know it's like we very frequently remind each other in all in all in with the you know, complete earnest that there's very literally nothing we would rather be doing with our with our time and energy i mean so yeah that, on that point but yes um 
you know, there, the, there have been many lows. I mean, everything from, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, the little ones, believe it or not, are the ones where, you know, a, a big sale you were expecting to come in or a retail account didn't perform as well as you wanted it to. But like the, the one that really comes to mind is, I think if we trace this back to, I want to say fall 2016, going out to raise our first real equity round of capital, speaking to venture funds, you have a, this, this is the series seed. So the series A, yeah, was, was, uh, earlier this year, actually, 2018, we were, we, we were in, in many respects riding high. We had, you know, compl- we had felt like we had completed like an, a pretty important step of beginning to outsource elements of our manufacturing to scale up the supply chain. You know, wholesale accounts were coming on, pipeline was strong. Uh, we were going to be launching in Target that January. Uh, we we're rolling out, you know, our first new flavor uh, of a, uh, a peppermint mocha cold brew that was going to be launching across Fresh Direct. Um, and spoiler alert, it may be back this winter. We've been getting lots of requests for it. And on like a rainy October day, we get called out to New Jersey and get told that our uh, the entire supply chain that you know I I personally because I over, oversee operations and spend the past six months like you know blood, sweat, and tears building, investing, getting to a point where finally things felt stable entire rug was getting pulled out from under us, you know, a zero day notice supply chain contract was being canceled. Um, and we went from having the ability to make, you know, the volumes of product that we needed at volumes that we had never been making before. You know, again, we talk, we talk about the, the journey of manufacturing for us and we went from five gallons to 50, 50 to 500, 500 to 5,000. Right. And this is, as we were working on the 500 to 5,000 step. And how did that happen? Like, well, how did it get canceled? Was it a supplier? I mean, it, yeah, no. I mean, it, it was. A, it was a. Yeah, everyone in their own business has the authority to make decisions they think are in the best, in the, in the best interests of their business. Not always cost free, but like you know, there, there's you know, no no such you know, in, you know, the handcuff contracts aren't ever really, really a thing. There's always an out. Um, and you know, the manufacturer that we had been been working with decided that that cold brew coffee and, and expanding expanding that as part of the portfolio that they were going to you know have under that roof did not fit with their strategy, and that they needed to go in another direction. And so you know the the capacity that we were co investing in to create you know, that that runway was was cut short and it was cut short very quickly. And so we needed to figure out. Like, you know, forget long term. Like, what are we doing for Monday's orders? Right. This was, you know, this was when we were producing multiple times a week. Right. We weren't holding inventory uh, in a meaningful way. You're know, going into to sign. You know, <laughs> it's like we're supposed to sign a term sheet that week. Like this is a fight. You know, this is a critical disclosure. You know, this delayed that whole fight. Yeah. You know, the financing put on hold. Like now it's like, okay, we need to shore up our, you know, this supply chain. We thought we had like, okay, we don't got this. <laughs> like. Oh my gosh, that impacts everything. Yeah, everything. What What do we do if not make product that consumers purchase? I mean that that is that's the business. Like yeah, there, there's the brand, there's the marketing, the logo's cool. What it's it's a product. You got to make it. Yeah, and so the the resolution. We're fortunate. Yeah, you know, Excel Foods, one of our one of our larger investors, have been been supportive for for a while. I mean they they they. They understood. I mean, they were like, "Listen, you will, 
we is like I, I thought they were going to completely freak out, right? They were our biggest investor at the time, and and, and you know their response was, was like, you'll, you'll figure this out, like go figure it out, like you're on the clock, but go figure it out." Um, and so that began. You know, we we had to take a step back, um, and think long, like really challenge ourselves to think long term. You know, forget the baby steps. What is what does this look like at scale? What does this look like at full automation? How big can we think? The the answer it didn't resolve itself. We're talking, you know, late October, early November. It didn't resolve itself fully. We weren't done dealing with this. Well, we're not. You're never done dealing, but we weren't. We didn't cross the finish line of, of the project to fix it until July of the following year. It was a six six seven month, you know, full you know all, you know, kind of all hands on deck type of effort. So that means you could not uh, initiate target. Uh, we know we did. No, we did. Oh, so yeah. For, forget the other. I mean, we had to set. We had to. You know, we, we were. We were like. We were a wandering bear. We would take shift time in in licensed commercial kitchens where we could get it. Move around our. I mean, we moved our tank a hand. Our tanks plural uh, a handful of times during during those those months just to get it done. You know, there there were t- you know, that that weekend. Um, you know, the team was four people at that time. Me, Ben, and, and and two, and that weekend, I mean, with it, you know, kicked out maybe on a Wednesday. Um, Thursday, we show, you know, we divide and conquer. Two people go up to the Bronx to set up a to set up and clean a new commercial kitchen space that we're going to use on Friday. Me and another go out to to the plant to load up uh, a bunch of equipment. We meet there uh, and get set up for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday production run that the four of us did ourselves just to make Monday's orders. I mean, this is out of time. This is how glamorous food business is. And a lot of times uh, when consumers or when the audience looks um, at a food brand, not enough is communicated about what goes behind <laughs> behind the screen. I mean, it's just amazing. It is moments like these that define a business and how you come out, you know, um, come out from this. So, wow. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. The, um, I mean, I know it's like cliche, but, you know, it would the worst thing that was the best that was the the worst thing that could have happened was us staying thinking that we had solved this manufacturing situation all, you know, all, all the while it being as tenuous as it really was the reality never changes right so yeah it's like it, it always would have been that tenuous whether we were deluding ourselves that it was or wasn't and so the necessity to get to a finish line to get to a point where our manufacturing went from scaled craft manufacturing to truly best in class I mean, it, it, you know, it was a it, it, the we would have had to do it eventually we did it maybe sooner than we would have otherwise and that has set the those decisions without doubt have set the foundation for the growth that we've achieved over the past 12 months so what happened did you find a co-packer that was just the perfect partner for you a few yeah i mean so i guess part of it right is that we no we no longer wanted to have all our eggs in one basket, so uh, you know set up you know a, a couple additional co-packers, and yet yeah, really found you know, a very symbiotic fit with so you know some great partners who saw the potential in what we were doing, uh, who you know, were already were already you know cl- were closer to the space, you know we're, were already you know producing not necessarily cold brew coffee products but similar products and similar packaging. And you worked with them, worked with the the manufacturers of the filling equipment of the of the packaging itself to to make 
modifications, changes necessary to run our products and really set up like what has been, you know, a series of incredibly successful partnerships. That's fantastic. Now, so that the I guess the key takeaway here is once you have that early traction and you have proven shelf velocity, you know that you have a pretty reasonable or strong sales forecast. Don't wait for that moment to expand or develop those relationships early on with co-packers and manufacturing partners, but just do it ahead of time before you hit that point where you have to delay things by six months. I do. I, I and, and and if if we're getting into you kind of the weeds or the specifics, and this is is probably it probably applies across across food, but to beverage specifically, um, you know, our experience has been that that packaging is the hard part. The packaging equipment is the tends to be the expensive, highly specialized stuff. Um, and you know, my counsel to yeah, which is which is not advice that we've taken, but is like try to the greatest extent possible to not reinvent the wheel. The you know, we you know, we we um you know you don't you don't know what you don't know. You're 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 optimistic and naive at the beginning, and and you know, we yeah you know, bag and box is like incredibly hard. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a, a you know, and we're in such a a competitive category with so many great strong brands that we from the beginning have really tried to, you know, to live that philosophy of, okay, well, if they're zigging, let's zag, right. And, and let's figure out what, what consumer behavior or preference or use case is being underserved and figure out how to serve it and serve it in a way that's meaningfully different. Not all categories require that, right. Especially if you're, if you're early or first and, you know, you know, say you're bringing something to market that, you know, first to market ingredient or new, you know, a completely new cat, you know, it's, if you're already doing something that's so fundamentally different, make it easy on yourself. I mean, like, you know, if you're going to, there, there are plenty of PT and glass bottling lines that can fill, you know, high acid products at, at scale. And you can, you know, work your way up through, through the different ranks of order minimums and co-packer sizes all the way up to the top. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say you always need to 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 race you know t- to the finish line and go go big out of the gate. I guess it's like you know uh, when it comes to operations, it's it's choose your complexity, but try not to make everything hard. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly see that. <laughs> now, tell me more about Costco. It is that dream uh, channel partner retail distribution that a lot of food brands hope to be on shelf at. How did you get into Costco? Is there anything that you can share with beverage manufacturers, RTD um, food startups? But RTD beverage food startups can take away as value from that really made a difference to your presentation. So yeah, just a couple. So I mean, I guess the first headline on Costco is that they are one of, if not the um, best partners that we've worked with or best companies we've worked with for, for a number of reasons. But the, the leading one being that they, they, they wear who they are on their sleeve. They're incredibly, you know, kind of you know, the, the type of thing where like you know, the, their handshake is their word. And you know, that doesn't always mean positive things. I mean, sometimes they will tell you that they're, you know, it, it tell you that they're rotating out a product and going to bring it back in, in a couple months or six months. And explain why it it, does, it doesn't always mean they're going to say yes to the item that you you propose, but it means that they'll do what they say and follow through on that agreement or agreement or not. And that's that is you know incredibly valuable, especially to small brands. I think the other you know the other thing we learned about Costco is that they are 
very they're they're uh, completely item focused, not brand or or line or product set focused. And so, you know, for the conversation with Costco, I think what really what really got us traction and and you know it ended up resonating was really you know us bringing them an item, a single product that we thought would work well for their member. And so what we had brought to Costco was, you know, essentially a larger version of our, our retail bag and box that was going to be, you know, something, something unique for them to put in the cold case, um, not just because of the packaging, but also this could be the, the uh, one of the first cold brews I think they were trying, at least in, in the region that we were uh, launching in the Northeast. So, um, yeah, it took many, many months of, of you know, conversations and, and follow up. You know, I guess that's the other thing. It's like, you know, they, um, you know, they, they did not seem to mind our persistence. If anything, they respected it. <laughs> but I wouldn't necessarily made anything move slow. You know, you know, they they were ready to test a cold brew when they were ready to test a cold brew. But I think it was you know, our persistence and just continue continuous follow up. You really uh, over over uh, phone calls and voicemails even more than email that you know, ultimately got us the meeting and, and you know months later created an opportunity for us to to test an item with with them here in the northeast. Well, congratulations. And you're still at Costco and it's not been affected by any kind of rotation so far? Uh, as right now, as of uh, you know, June 29th, we are still on shelves. So it's, uh, but yeah, I think that you know, with them, it is, it is always, I think that you know, the, the, I think there are certainly some brands and some items that are, are year round, um, uh, oh, you know, very openly. I mean, we're kind of always expecting that call, expecting to be rotated out um, as a seasonal item. They, they, their philosophy is to be early in, early out. So they want the item, you know, if it's Christmas cookies, they want it in by Thanksgiving and out the day after Christmas or day before. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah, they're, yeah, you know, and the my words, not theirs, obviously. But the um, you know, with that specific example, but they, um, you know, the the ex- expectations around velocity are incredibly high. Every one of their, you know, four thousand or so, you know, uh, items in the store sells incredibly well, and you know they pride themselves as merchants on, on about knowing and identifying you know, those items that their their members want, and they're really really good at it. Good, good, good. And do you wonder if they share any data, like the kind of data on velocity or how it's shifting and what SKU is doing, how like Kroger does or Whole Foods does? Do they share any data? Certainly not the way Whole Foods does. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, our experience uh, has been no, they don't. The I believe it's I believe it's available for sale through one of a, a third party partner that that uh, frankly we just haven't allocated budget to really explore. I mean, Whole Foods, on the other hand, right, has mm-hmm. a portal where you can see your know, unit movement by store by day, you know, if, if you right. want to, which is an incredible tool. And, you know, as a, as a brand, you know, if every retailer had that, we'd be able to make, you know, much better decisions. Uh, it'd be fantastic. But, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, for, for us, at least it's the, the Costco movement has been a little bit more of a black box. Gotcha. Yep. And, in terms of where you are today, and uh, you just shared that you did, you uh, just did a Series A this year. Uh, where are you headed? Where is Wandering Bear going to be in the next two to five years? What's the vision? We are very much, you know, heads down at the moment, focused on product and growth, and and the intent over the next 
you know, coming months and years is to replicate the omni-channel distribution strategy that we've built in the Northeast across the country, you know, focused, you know, on, on, on key markets and then, and then filling in. And so, you know, what that means is, you know, as, as referenced earlier, kind of that, that channel split a third, a third, a third, you know, it's, it's continuing to scale and expand the brand at retail. Um, but not just that. I mean, the, it's the, the expansion, if anything, at the moment is being led by our direct business and being led by our food service business. And so, you know, again, we really, you know, in service, in service, not just to the brand, but to the cold brew category. I mean, our, our, our view is, is how do you get the coffee in cups? And so, you know, for us, that, that omni-channel strategy, the, the range of products, sizes, formats that we offer really caters to that um, and allows us, I think, some unique opportunities to find product market fit as we have here in the Northeast. And so it's really working to replicate that. And one other question, uh, because I found this as, as interesting on your website as well, is you have been named by numerous press outlets as a must-have subscription, right? How do you get there? You know, what can you share with our listeners on a key acquisition, client acquisition strategy for the subscription side of the business? You know, it's so funny. Our, it's, we put it up on the site just to see what would happen. Um, you, uh, you know, it, it was, um, and, you know, thanks to the great folks over at Shopify and the wonderful developers that make all of like the plugins that fit into the Shopify app store. Uh, it was like five clicks, right? And maybe a, a small subscription, a small like monthly fee uh, added onto our account to enable subscribe and save Amazon style. Yeah, we use Bold. Uh, is that something that you? I think there's a couple of them, right, for subscriptions. Bold apps, I think. Yeah, or that, that's the. Yeah, I think that. I think that's uh, who we're using as well. And so the. Um, and so you know, we enabled it, and over time, it's become something like sixty or seventy percent of our web sales. Uh, we have we have yet to. What I'll admit is, is a, at the moment, a, a totally subpar user experience because, um, you know, it was never our direct business has largely been B2B, not B2C focused. But we've seen an increasing, very organic interest in our larger format products and to, to, to a lesser extent, but, but meaningful, the single serve line in full cases. And so we are uh, we are about to begin you know, testing and investing behind more of a traditional user acquisition strategy for that service in part because now we have for the for the direct to office business created a a national dropship fulfillment network that we're able to leverage to serve markets outside of the northeast more cost effectively which historically we haven't been able to do um, shipping's been very expensive to the west coast for example so that's been a, a limiting factor on growth there uh, that is going to be changing so yeah i mean all you know just just parts of uh, parts of grown up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're experimenting, you're testing out every channel, you're tweaking, you're optimizing, and uh, on your way to building. Well, it's already, you know, I'm sure it's successful, but just taking it to new heights every year. So I'm excited for you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. No, absolutely. And I, you know, thank you for sharing all these pointers. I, I, there's a lot of value in everything that you've shared from the channel strategy to growing organically, to leveraging the new trends in the market. Subscription is increasingly coming over from tech into even refrigerated items. I had a discussion the other week, in fact, with an investor at a prominent investment firm. And uh, that's one of the things that they're looking at is the recurring income. 
Subscription is not no longer only applicable to things that are intangible, but now it's coming into uh, CPG as well. And it's no longer just on items that are shelf stable. It's coming to even frozen refrigerated items as well. So that is, it's good to see. What I really hope will happen is all this demand and a change in consumer behavior will lead to better logistics systems. Completely agree. And not, not just for you know, that last mile direct to consumer, but also for, for wholesale, for freight and, and LTL. It's been, that, that's probably been the biggest strain on the business this year. Yeah, the, uh, the the freight market's gotten very tight on us, um, especially the refrigerated freight market with new regulations in, in the transportation industry, and it's really put put a crunch on a lot of our business because we do so do so much direct. It's been, um, yeah, no, I think for for lots of reasons there there are huge opportunities and and people much much smarter than us working on that. So I'm I'm, I'm optimistic that that uh, that Tesla and the like will have a have a solution uh, for us soon. Yeah, let's certainly hope so. <laughs> but thank you for coming on the podcast today. And thank you for taking the time out and sharing, uh, you know, your journey and some lessons learned. And so we appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Uh, appreciate it and hope to talk soon. Yes, absolutely. Take care, Matt. Bye. If you found value in what you just heard, take a couple of minutes and subscribe to our channel. Even better, show us some love and leave a review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Join the mailing list on our website so you can get notified of new episodes and learn how to build and grow your CPG business.